Hi, I'm Brittany, and this is For Colored Nerds, the weekly show where we peel back the layers of Black culture we rarely discuss in mixed company. Today on the show, we're joined by writer, author, and advocate Beverly Gooden. You may know Beverly as the creator of the hashtag Why I Stayed, which highlighted the complex stories of domestic violence survivors. Or you might know her memoir, Surviving, Why We Stay and How We Leave Abusive Relationships. We brought Beverly on the show to shed light on the domestic violence conversations happening everywhere in pop culture right now. From the new Mike Tyson biopic on Hulu to Megan Thee Stallion's ongoing battle with public opinion, we've been inundated with narratives that favor the alleged abuser. So we thought it best to amplify the experience of those who are on the receiving end of that harm. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So, to start things off, I first came to know you and your work when you started the hashtag why I stayed. Talk yes. to me about what that hashtag means and and, and how or, or why you started it. Yeah, so why I stayed was in 2014. And what happened is a video was released by TMZ of a football player named Ray Rice. And he had punched his fiance in an elevator and then dragged her out of the elevator. And the video was released. I was heavy on Twitter at the time, heavy, heavy on Twitter at the time. Initially, the response was shock, right? Because we don't have a lot of videos that just explicitly show the moment of impact. And then the news came out that he had gone on to marry his fiance that he had punched in the elevator. That's when it took a turn. And so the questions then became, why would she stay with him? Or comments like, I would never you know, let anyone abuse me. I would never marry anyone that's abused me. And so at that time, I hadn't been speaking about domestic violence at all. But in that moment, I remember feeling a lot of shame and like a lot of guilt, even though no one was Mm. talking about me, but I knew that I had also stayed. So it wasn't the shame and guilt of even, you know, experiencing partner violence. It was staying Mm -hmm. in it. And so I started to tweet some of my reasons for staying And that was it. Like I tweeted them. I didn't have a lot of followers. I went about my business. And an hour later, I came back and it was trending in the U.S. And I saw so many stories from other survivors about why they stayed. You know, people wanted to talk about why they would stay or why it's so difficult to leave. I think the expectation is always this happens. You get up and go. It's over. You start your new life. Everything's fine. It's great. And in reality, that's not how it goes. And it's not that easy And in fact, violence increases once you leave, especially in the two weeks following, because the abuser has lost control. You know, I I was on Twitter at that time and I 
remember that hashtag. I remember the day that that video dropped. Mm -hmm. You know, you also said that before that time, you hadn't really talked about abuse before, Mm -hmm. even though it was, you know, something that you survived and are on the other side of now. I wonder how did creating that hashtag change the course of your life? Because now, you know, this is primarily how I know you to be somebody who raises and moves conversations about abuse forward. You know, the interesting thing is that when I experienced abuse, I didn't identify as someone who survived domestic violence, even though the violence Mm -hmm. in my relationship was physical. You know, I think in the beginning that it was easier for me to talk because I wasn't necessarily talking about myself, you know, and that was the Mm -hmm. way that I hit it. Like I'm talking about the issue of domestic violence, where I'm talking about the stories in pop culture about domestic violence. I'm not necessarily talking about myself. And I did that for a long time, like years and years when I was talking about it. And then over time, I found that people wanted to hear my personal story. And so Mm -hmm. I had to kind of quickly become comfortable with sharing that piece of it, particularly the part about staying. And like I said before, people don't like to to hear that. People don't like to hear that if I love someone, I want to stay with them, whether they're violent or not. And so I noticed that. I started to see that people, you know, were uncomfortable with the idea of staying in an abusive relationship because of love and love alone. And so I felt a responsibility to to do that, to talk about it. And to be real, like, it's still uncomfortable. Like, I don't want to make it seem like this is my life now and I love talking about abuse and I always want to talk about abuse. Like, I don't always feel that way. Sometimes I don't want to talk about it. So it's still difficult, but I I do feel really compelled to keep talking about it only because I think if the issue was decreasing or lessening, or if we were actually ending domestic violence, I probably wouldn't want to talk about it as much, but all evidence points to it getting worse. And I feel like I have to do it. And you've been doing it. I mean, you, you recently wrote a book called mm-hmm. Surviving, Why We Stay and How yeah. We Leave Abusive Relationships. Talk to me about this book and why you wrote it. At its core, surviving is a story about reinvention. I think we hear the story of the actual violence a lot, you know, that that moment where there's abuse and then, you know, how do you escape abuse or how do you just quickly get out of it? I wanted to write about staying in abuse, what that looks like, why we do it, why I wanted to stay. But I also wanted to talk about life after abuse. One thing that frustrates me a lot about conversations regarding domestic violence is that we pretend that the survivor's story ends there. We kind of box them into this thing happened to you. We're always going to talk about that one thing. And we don't really care what happened afterwards. We just want to care about this moment of impact. And so I wanted to write a book, one, as a Black woman. I wanted to write that because our stories are different. You know, just Mm -hmm. the way that we experience abuse is different. But I also wanted to talk about what happens next. I wanted to talk about dating again, which was terrible. You know, it's... (laughs) It's not great. You know, I want to talk about that. I wanted to talk about the harm I've gone on to cause, just dealing with the trauma, you know, um, and in dating again and not knowing how to handle being re-traumatized by things that aren't necessarily in my current relationships after that, but how I use the things that I learned to cope with the violence in my relationship and how I took those things into relationships that were fine and peaceful and not violent and how, you know, I caused some harm there. I want to talk about rebuilding. I want to talk about the lies I told on my resume to get new jobs. You know, like I wanted to tell, you know, I wanted to tell the real story of what happens during recovery. I wanted to talk about 
rebuilding and taking those pieces of you that you still have left and using that to start a new life. I want to talk about all those things because I wanted people to know that our stories don't end when the music stops. You know, we keep going and it's hard and it takes a long time to rebuild, but you can do it. You just said that like Black women experience intimate partner violence Mm -hmm. differently. What did you mean by that? One of the things that I wrote about in my book is some research on how Black women have a lot of competing identities. So we deal with racism, we deal with sexism, and all of those impact how we receive help from law enforcement or agencies. Mm -hmm. Um, When we walk into a door asking for help, how we're perceived, are we perceived as wow, this is someone that I need to get help to or perceived as, you know, you're exaggerating or you're making it up Mm. or, you know, how can you be believable? Or you look fine, you know, I don't see any bruises, you know, because our skin is darker. You know, just things like that, how we experience it differently. Writing about how Black women, we are, you know, really taught from an early age to protect Black men. You know, we're forced into the labor of care, you know, um, we're, we're sisters and mothers and caretakers and cooks and custodians, sex partners or objects. You know, we're subservient, we're needed, we're demanded of, you know, and we're expected to perform all of those identities, even in abuse. I think about how many times in my life I've heard that Black women are expected to be protected or catered to, you know, or valued. Mm -hmm. I I didn't hear those messages. We don't hear those messages. And so we don't assume the posture of a protected class. You know, we assume the posture of a class. I'm sorry. Oh, keep going. But that was a first. You got me with that. (laughs) We don't, right? We don't assume that posture because that's not what we've been taught we are. That idea extends into every area of our lives, especially romantic relationships. You know, I think that carries. It carries into... Are we going to call the police when our partner's abusing us? Mm. We think twice, you know, because we know, you know, we know what could happen. Those are things that Black women think about that others don't. Like, they don't have not, that's not a thought. They just call. And so that's what I, what I meant when I say that we experience it differently. We experience help differently. I think about um, Toy and Salau who was an activist Mm. in Tallahassee, Florida, and how, you know, she explicitly said where she was when she was there and that someone had assaulted her on Twitter out loud Mm -hmm. for all to see. Um, Nothing happened. You know, there was no investigation. And then she went missing. Still, nothing happened. Police didn't go. No one looked for her. They found her body accidentally. And that stays with me. I think about it so much. They found her body because an older white woman had gone missing and in looking for her mm-hmm. in the massive they search, found Toyin. they found Toyin. So the search mm-hmm. wasn't even for Toyin. It was for this older white woman. And, and she was accidentally found there next to her because the same person murdered them. We live different. We experience life different. We experience violence different. We experience care different. And I think that was so important to bring up for me in the book and just kind of generally when I talk about domestic violence, it, a, year, a few years ago, I learned that Black women, specifically between the ages of 15 and 34, one of the top causes of death is homicide at the hands of a current or former partner. Never heard that before. It's something that I found in just some research one day. Why isn't that something that 
we should be screaming that, right? But we don't get that care. So that's how we experience it differently. The first sentence of the first chapter of your book says, the thing about abuse is that it creeps up on you. Hmm. Tell me what you meant by that sentence. When I met my ex-husband, he was so good. I mean, <laughs> y'all can't see me because I'm, 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 I'm smiling thinking about it. Still, still, he was so good. He was fine, number one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he was fine and sweet and kind. And uh, we met in church. So, you know, I thought mm. that that was a safe that's what they tell you to do. They tell you to look for a good guy in church. In church, right? Well, yeah, there he yeah. was. And it was it was good. It was peaceful. It was beautiful. It was everything that I wanted it to be. And not in a corny way. Like, I genuinely mean, like, he, when I thought of who I wanted to be with, it was him. He had everything. And so, and it was good at first. It was good for a long time. But s- slowly, things I now know are signs um, started mm. to happen. I didn't know then because I had never had an abusive. I had never been in that before. So mm-hmm. he would start to say things like, "Well, let me know what your class schedule is." I was in school. Let me know what your class schedule mm-hmm. is, or where you'll be, so that I can come meet you there. Or you know, because I just want to know where you are, so I can make sure you're safe. You know, things like that. I'm like, oh, he just wants to protect me. Like that's so no one has mm. ever wanted to protect me. But that can be perverted, right? Because over time it mm. turned into let me know your ske- your schedule so I can, you know, make sure you're safe or or stop by to let me know your schedule because I need to know who you're with and who you're talking mm. to. Like it just slowly just kind of creeps from, you know, he like I said, we met in church and we were into like the whole, you know, dressing modest. I'm, I don't now. I just how I want. But like back then, you know, dressing modestly. And so he would be like, I don't like your your deep V-neck tops. You know, I like when you wear like these tops, you know, the ones that are close to the neck. And I'm like, oh, oh OK. Like crew neck. Yeah, yeah. Then I would start wearing all crew neck top. It wasn't even because of church. It was because he didn't want that to be seen. And so that's what I mean when I say it creeps up on you. Like it starts you don't know it's happening. You know, you don't even know that that person is the villain of your story. You don't know because it's so sweet and it's so loving and the things seem okay. It doesn't seem like extreme jealousy. It doesn't seem like control or manipulation. It just seems like love or what you know or what you've heard about love or what you've heard in the music or seen in the movies. It just seems very normal. And then, you know, by the time you realize something is wrong, you're deep in it. And I want to say that it's on purpose. Like people who are abusive know what they're doing and they do it this way on purpose because if I would have gone out with him on the first date and he strangled me, there would have been no second date, you know, because it's the first date. And like, you don't, you don't do that on the first date. Abusers know when to introduce pain. They know it takes a buildup. They know that they can't just out the gate, tell you what to wear on the first date. Uh, it actually brings me to my next question. You know, you, you said something that really surprised me in the book. You, you say abuse is not a cycle. And that runs counter mm-hmm. to the prevailing teachings about domestic abuse, yeah. which is that, you know, there is a period of peace that's disrupted by, you know, some sort of like inciting incident and then tension builds. And then there's a, an instance of pointed abuse and then apology, repair, peace there's again, the whole, circle. you know. yeah. Yeah, I have, and so many people who are listening have seen the diagram with the circle yeah. on it. Reading that, I was like, hmm, how do you describe abuse and how it works if not as a cycle? 
I would describe parts of abuse as cyclical in certain relationships. I think that that wheel that we've all seen applies in some ways. I don't think it applies in all ways. For instance, for me, abuse wasn't necessarily a cycle because I couldn't predict it. I think Mm. if it is a cycle, then it can be. I think the problem with calling it a cycle is that it indicates some level of being able to see it coming or being able to um, predict or identify when it will be violent. And I don't think that that's always true. I thought I had it under control for a long long time. Like I thought, Mm. you know, I thought that it would be fine. I didn't think that I was in a cycle. I thought it was under control. And then when something would happen, a lot of times there wouldn't even be a peaceful period after that. There wouldn't even be, you know, there was violence and now we're good. Sometimes there would just be repeat violence. It would just happen to happen. And then sometimes, you know, that silence would extend for so long. Sometimes we'd move into separate rooms and we wouldn't even be talking. So it wasn't predictive. What I'm looking for is a more inclusive way to describe abuse as opposed to cycles and stages. I think maybe it would be more inclusive to just not do that. Just identify, you know, the signs and what it looks like and the terms so that we can have Mm -hmm. that language, but not necessarily Mm -hmm. say it is this wheel and, you know, this wheel is happening because what if that wheel doesn't happen? What if then you don't think that you're experiencing abuse because you can't point Mm -hmm. to every area, you know, on Mm -hmm. that wheel? I'm always kind of looking for ways to include people, you know, who might be left out by something, And I always just fear that when we make those charts and when we make things, those explicit types of cycles, that mm-hmm. we are pushing people further into silence because they might not line up with every, with every dot. One yeah. of the hardest parts of your book to read was the part when you sought relationship counseling with your then husband and you finally opened up to someone outside your relationship about the abuse. And your husband didn't deny it. Like no, you said, he's, he's hitting me. he's been honest about it, yeah. And the therapist was like, okay, hitting is wrong. And he suggested- He did that, say that. Was it? Yeah, and he suggested that, that you two take some time apart. But he also suggested that you were doing something mm-hmm. to make your then-husband be violent with you. Exactly. And that you should figure out what that was. Yeah. And, you know, so often in our society, which is- heavily influenced by by religion. Yeah. Conversations yeah. about abuse in in hetero relationships place responsibility on the woman yeah. to save or fix the relationship or right. <laughs> leave, right? Right. Like right, right. that like you can just walk out the door and yeah. you know n- you know none of these things that we all know to be true are true as opposed to focusing on stopping right. the abuse, stopping right. the, the the abuser from abusing right. or protecting the woman from the man's abuse. Why is that so many people's immediate reaction? I think it's almost our natural reaction to to violence, specifically violence against women. And I think it goes back to the messages that we've told women specifically about how they can control their environment to prevent harm. It's just a really twisted Mm. way of thinking about protection. When it comes to victim blaming, 
it's so common now that I think people might believe it's normal, that it's normal to immediately ask questions about the person who experienced the violence from the very common, you know, what were you wearing to why were you there? Or, you know, Mm. better because that person has reputation. So why were you messing with them anyway? Or, you know, you know, if you get loud, you shouldn't get loud with with men. You know, you shouldn't disrespect Mm -hmm. men. Like all these messages. One of the ways that we can... I don't even know if we will. One of the ways that we may be able to work, change victim blaming or begin to change victim blaming is to focus on the messages. Like, what are we telling people who experience violence? Are we immediately telling them that they need to figure out a way to prevent it from happening to them? Why is that onus on them? And I think that we hesitate so often to ask the abusive person to figure that out for themselves because of those messages we tell specifically women that you can control it. My first counselor wasn't, I'm not excusing him. You know, Mm -hmm. I think that he thought he was, we were there for him to figure out a way to save our marriage. Not that he was going to figure out how to save me from being abused. His goal was to save the marriage, you know, but your goal has to change. When you're confronted with my husband is hitting me and then my husband is sitting next to me and saying, yes, I do that. Like your goal then has to change. I I need your goal to now be how do we save the person? Because saving the person should always be more important than saving the institution. Because honestly, screw the institution. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Cheers to a great day and this ice-cold Corona. You know what would make this day even better? My grandma's carne asada. Or your grandma here with us, making carne asada. She does love a cold Corona. Throw in some dancing. Oh, we can watch the game. I'll drink to that. So a backyard concert with football, food, dancing, and Corona? And your grandma. Or we could keep it simple. Simple is good. Want a Corona? Thanks. Salud to the perfect day. Corona, la vida más fina. Get your Corona at ordercorona.com. Relax responsibly. Corona Extra Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Hi. 
I've been thinking a lot about honestly statistics like the ones you sh- like the one you shared earlier. Yeah. And I can't remember the exact like magnification, but when a woman is pregnant, she is much more likely yeah. to be killed by a partner. Yeah. And in this like post Roe versus Wade, like post Roe society that we're living in now, where a person's right mm-hmm. to choose to terminate a pregnancy is not secured, no longer secured right. in this country yeah. after 50 years. After 50 um, years. How do you see that reality, that new reality that we're mm-hmm. living in affecting pregnant people who are in abusive relationships? You know, this is the ending of lives, the actual lives that are here on this earth that are walking, that are mm-hmm. able to become pregnant. We know from the research that children who grow up in homes where they are seeing or witnessing abuse, whether they're abused or not, whether they're not, whether they're a part of it or not, who just witness it, go on to have like distinct traumas from viewing that, just seeing it, just being in the house with that violence and that tension. And so we're creating a generation of kids, you know, who are going to grow up with those traumas. And then what? I guess my point is that this one decision reverberates through history. You know, it Mm. just keeps going. We're not saving anyone. We're harming people that aren't even here. It's just really sad. Between (laughs) Roe being overturned and some recent very public celebrity domestic violence situations that have been talked about, which we'll get to in a moment. Yeah. It feels like conversations are like just worse than ever. But I wonder, what's the biggest misconception that the general public has about why people stay in abusive Mm -hmm. relationships? I think it has to do with resources. The biggest misconception is tied to the idea that if you just leave, everything will be okay. And I think that's because a lot of people don't realize that leaving is largely dependent on your resources. And by resources, I mean money that your family might have, money that you might have independent of your abuser, access to domestic violence agencies. And a lot of people who live in rural areas literally don't have a domestic violence agency nearby or in their towns. You know, your escape depends so much on those things. And so Financial abuse is actually the most common form of abuse. It's not even physical or emotional. It's actually financial abuse. And it's because, yeah, it's because abusers will often use finances as a way to restrict access to money or any financial tools. And so, you know, and it's not always obvious or explicit. They'll do things like say, well, you don't need to work anymore. I make enough money. I want you to stay home and take care of me or take care of the kids. Mm. Now you've removed income from someone. They don't even have independent income. That is a way to control someone's finances. People do things like run up their partner's credit. So there's no available credit to even go and get a rental car or anything like that, or they completely ruin their credit. They'll take out loans in their names. Mm. All of this is intentional. They want you not to have the resources to be able to leave. And the thing about finances, I want to say, particularly in our communities, is that, you know, those things are quiet. You don't talk about money. We just now started sharing salaries. Like, I love that. And that's a new thing, right? So we don't even do Mm -hmm. those things. So when it comes to financial abuse, you're going to have a hard time admitting that you don't have any money, you know, that you don't even have a credit card um, Mm. to your name. You don't have a debit card. You don't have an individual bank account. Your whole financial life is tied to your partner, you're not going to say that out loud most of the time. You know, the assumption that someone can just get up and go 
is our biggest misconception because a lot of people can't, most people can't. That was a great answer. So to turn a little bit toward pop culture, because in the whole, in, all, in everything, all the dumpster fires that are going on <laughs> as far as abuse conversations with that, yeah. the first thing that comes to mind is the recent um, Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. And yeah. it was remarkable in that it was the only domestic abuse-focused celebrity trial I can think of yeah. that was both televised live and litigated endlessly on social yes. media while yes. it was happening in real time. Yes. And Laurel Anderson, the psychologist in the trial, used the term mutual abuse to describe the couple's dynamic. Although, you know, many psychologists, abuse experts, activists, survivors so find the idea of mutual abuse a complete fallacy. So Despite that, talk of mutual abuse continued to pop up in the public narrative of the Depp Heard case, and it colored many people's opinions of the trial, which later went in Johnny Depp's favor. Why is that term inappropriate? Mm -hmm. And why are people so willing to embrace it? Yeah. Number one, the reason that mutual abuse amongst the domestic violence communities is called a myth is because there is almost always a predominant aggressor. And so a predominant aggressor is the person who initiates the violence. It is the person who started it. You know, regardless of any, whether anyone defended themselves or, you know, hit back, setting that aside, the person who initiated it is the predominant aggressor. And there is almost always one of them. And so I think the reason why a lot of domestic abuse experts push back at the idea of mutual abuse is because they know someone started it. Someone initiated that violence. And so the term mm -hmm. mutual abuse is so frustrating, but I think it's always also so common because... This is just my thought. This is what I think about it. I think mm -hmm. abuse is one of those things where in a certain light of the moon, we can see ourselves doing. Maybe not punching or strangling because that is very um, explicit and extreme. But I think in certain lights, we can see ourselves saying something verbally abusive. You know, we can see ourselves maybe even, you know, pushing someone or, you know, elbowing them. Like we can see ourselves being manipulative, saying things like, well, if you love me, you will do whatever I say, you know, or do this one certain thing. Mm. We can see that in ourselves, you know, and I think we cling to things like mutual abuse or terms like mutual abuse or ideas like mutual abuse because it somewhat absolves us of that fear that we could also be doing the same thing. And so if we put mm. the abuse on an even playing field, if we say, you know, you're responsible, but you're also responsible because you mm. did this. And if you didn't do this, then this wouldn't have happened. Two, we can like neutralize it. That neutralizing makes us more comfortable. It gives us some peace as mm. opposed to just admitting that this person is abusive or that we, you know, have thought about whether or not we're abusive and maybe we should talk to someone about that or, you know, because there's mm -hmm. ways to interrupt that. If you think that maybe, you know, you are the abuser or that you might have abusive behaviors, you can talk to someone. You can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline and they will talk to you about that. You know what I'm saying? You don't have to mm -hmm. hide it or be secretive or come up with terms like mutual abuse to make, to lessen, you know, the severity of the violence against someone else. That's what I think. You know, the other thing about the term mutual abuse if somebody came up and hit you, 
And then you hit them back and then you yeah. drew a crowd. A couple <laughs> people would be like, nah, that first person, they hit the other person yeah, first. Yeah, that's such that, a good then point. Then the person who hit first becomes, such a good point. they're the villain. Right. But it just doesn't work that way when, when love, people are thinking when about, yeah. Yeah. All, you're always receiving like these messages about mm-hmm. how to engage. But if you really look at it, there's almost, there's like no way to be that perfect, quote unquote, perfect victim. And Literally no way. Another celebrity that makes me think about that is Robin Givens. You know, for, for many mm-hmm. Black millennials and, and Gen Xers, our first introduction to, to the yeah. idea of intimate partner violence in pop culture was the Mike Tyson-Robin Givens situation. Yeah. And despite Mike Tyson being Robin Givens' alleged abuser, yeah. her acting career was effectively derailed. Yeah. And his celebrity, despite the fact that he later was convicted for sexual assault and went to prison, his celebrity has only grown. It's grown. He still went on to have a career as a boxer, long enough to bite off Evander Holyfield's ear. Right. And Another incident of violence. Another incident of violence. And, you know, he's gone on to appear in movies and TV shows and he's not got a podcast, from what I understand. But... You know, I, my, the thing that gets me that I've been thinking about a lot is he's also had a pretty, a few pretty flattering movies or TV shows yeah. made about his life. And he's yeah. still alive. Yep. There's a new one coming out soon that's going to star Trevante Rhodes. Yeah. And I wonder how do biopics like this affect the public narratives yeah. around alleged male abusers? I think that we seem to believe that entertainment and the capital, you know, it brings is more important than the people who are harmed by that entertainment. I think we see it with Woody Allen. You know, we see it with R. Kelly, you know, that really the the joy we get as outsiders looking into the lives of, of celebrities or the people in pop culture that we love is what matters most. Like our joy and our our entertainment matters most, regardless of how our joy can cause re-traumatization to others. Specifically about this series with Mike Tyson, do we need that? You know, I think like, honestly, like, don't we have enough, you know, don't we have enough historical record on his background and his life? He's alive. That's the other thing. He's in his fifties, I think. Like he's, He's fine. He's, He's not gone anywhere. You know, like, I feel like, don't we have enough information on his athleticism? Like, did we need this series? Mm. There's, an, there's a film coming out, too, or something. Like, do we mm-hmm. need that? One thing I want to say is that I'm not necessarily immune to it. You know, I think that, for mm. me, the beauty of art is that it has pieces of the artist woven through it, right? So whether it's mm-hmm. film or music or visual arts or you know, sports, athleticism. I think that when I interact with that art, I'm interacting with the person who made it, right? And mm. so, you know, because without that person, the art wouldn't exist, you know, without right. without Mike Tyson, we wouldn't have this series, right? So I think when we have that intimacy, um, that connection with an artist or celebrity, it can be really hard for us to accept that that thing we love or that person we love or that art we love is created by a brutal person, you know? So mm. we start to make excuses. And then we, you know, as a way to settle our discomfort, we we start to to say, oh, it's just a bi- biopic. It's okay. You know, we need to know more about this person. Or we do things like we say, we've forgiven them for what they've done. Right. You know, it's all about we, but who are we? You know, like, we don't know this person. We, we don't know what they do in private. We 
do know about their history of abuse. We do know that. And so Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think you can appreciate their talent and their accomplishments without excusing the harm they've done or supporting the new biopic or whatever that comes out about them. I think for me, I've been really intentional. I wrote about this in my book is that I've never said my ex-husband's name publicly. And I think it's because I don't want to move through life like Robin has to, you know, or Mm. Megan Thee Stallion has to, or Amber Heard. I don't want to have to move through life like that. I don't want to have to hear his name every time I discuss abuse. I don't want to, I don't want to see it. I don't want to, and neither of us is famous, you know, so take my feelings Mm -hmm. on a small private level enlarge them and apply them to a survivor with a famous ex-abuser. Can you imagine? You're like constantly contending with the trauma of that ever presence, you know? So I don't think we need the series. You know, I I think we have enough. I want to touch on for a second just what you said about you not wanting to use your husband's name in the book and, you know, not having to go through life as, as so many of these other famous women or even women who aren't famous, right? Yep. It's really sad how... If you're a woman and you name your abuser, speaking specifically about like hetero relationships, if Mm -hmm. you're a woman and you name your abuser, that person's name, your abuser's name is attached to yours forever. Forever. Right? But if you're a man, the woman's name will bounce off (laughs) and you can go on to achieve greater fame and be open to more opportunities. Yeah. One of the only people that I can think of who managed to have a lot of success. I mean, the stories of her abuse still follow her, but her legacy is still much greater, is Tina Turner with Ike Turner, her marriage to Ike Turner. It's one of the most ubiquitous and well-known incidents of intimate partner violence. And we've heard Tina's experience in interviews, memoirs, and films. But also, you know, there's all these jokes and comments and theories that have been made at Tina's expense for years since she came out. She has been like the joke. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, she's definitely been the joke. I mean, in the past few years, there's finally even been a bit of pushback to that lyric from Drunk in Love when Jay-Z says, eat the cake anime, which by the way, I can't. that comes, that follows a Mike Tyson lyric. <laughs> another thing. Another thing. It's startling it's that startling. that eat the cake joke carried for so many decades. I don't know. It, it points to this feeling that, you know, it still feels like there's a huge Lack of empathy. You know, there are so many instances of the public getting it wrong in our understanding of intimate partner violence. All the instances that we've named, but even some more that we haven't, like Khalees and Nas, Mm -hmm. she opened up and that conversation went swiftly nowhere. OJ Mm -hmm. and Nicole Brown Simpson, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, as quiet as he's trying to keep that. You know, during these times when certain conversations bubble up, it can feel like Twitter, TikTok, Facebook, Barbershops, yeah. <laughs> barbershops, churches, barbershops, churches, churches, <laughs> Thanksgiving tanks. tables, yeah. all these places where people congregate and talk. Sometimes it just feels like they're just like an endless loop of people's yeah. ugliest ideas yeah. about domestic abuse. Yeah. So I wonder what would it look like to get this public conversation right? That's such a good question. Number one goes back to what you were saying about empathy. I think in order to get it right, we have to accept that people have different experiences than what we want them to have. I mean, we want someone to leave abuse or to not deal with abuse, and they do, and they're choosing to stay. 
I think accepting that that is a reality of a lot of people's lives will help move the conversation forward. Because right now we seem stuck in like a place where, you know, you're staying and so it's your fault or it's mutually abusive or you brought it on yourself or you like it, you're masochist. And that does nothing but make it a contentious conversation because now we're arguing about why staying is valid. And like now we're arguing about whether or not we ever hit them back or, yell. you know, it just, mm. so I think the beginning of a good conversation, a good dynamic about abuse is recognizing that there are differences. And I felt like that could probably apply broadly, right? A lot of conversations mm-hmm. would be better <laughs> if we just recognize that there are differences in our opinion of what an abuse survivor should look like and what they actually do look like. I think that's the starting point. In my ideal world, if we could slide that into early mm-hmm. education about um, what does manipulation look like? What is autonomy? What control should you have over your own body and your own choices? What does it look like when someone likes you? When someone likes you, do they pinch you or do they pull your hair or do they use their words? We have to have that base level of understanding about the language and the dynamics of abuse to have a good conversation. So for me, I think we can get there. You know, I'm I'm not someone who feels hopeless. You know, mm-hmm. I don't think we'll always be here. I think the, even the memification will pass. I don't know when, but like, I I think we'll get back to like a place where this is now unacceptable. I, I have a lot of hope. I think that in order for that hope to activate, it's going to take a lot of effort. I just don't know that people want to make that effort right now. Well, Beverly, I, I certainly hope we do. I certainly hope we do. It has been such a pleasure to speak with you today. You too. I've admired your work for so long. So this is really, um, yeah, this is great. I'm, I'm really, really, thank you. I, I'm really glad that that people have been able to hear what you have to share. So if people want to find you or your work, yes. where should they go? So um, my website is Beverly Gooden, G-O-O-D-E-N.com. I'm at Bev T. Gooden on all socials. And my book is called Surviving why we stay and how we leave abusive relationships. And it is available wherever you want to buy from. (laughs) Thank you so, so much, Beverly. Thank you for having me, Brittany. For Colored Nerds was created by me, Eric Eddings, and Brittany Luce. It's supported by a production team at Stitcher, including producer Alexis Williams, story editor Gianna Palmer, social producer Elise Ellis, and engineer Marcus Hamm. Our theme music is by Willie Green. And look, y'all, we love hearing from you so, so much. So please shout us out on Instagram at For Colored Nerds, on Twitter at For Colored Nerds. You can find us everywhere at For Colored Nerds. And tell your friends, too. We love it also when we're like, yo, my homie, cousin, best friend told me to listen to this episode. And it was bomb. And then I subscribed. That's like my favorite song. So please do your your friend, do your community a favor and share an episode and tell us which one it was. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.